so you have um, provided a woman with an effective working epidural and you're in theatre two hours later when a code blue cesarean is called for cord prolapse. Actually, I'm going to correct you. She, this is another day and she doesn't have an epidural. <laughs> oh, Roger. So we could um, stop recording, couldn't we? Oh, and you could edit this, couldn't we? Yeah. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This is the, I think the second time we've, or third time we've tried to record this. Mm. We've had a few false starts. Yes. But um, it's just before Christmas and we thought we'd better get back together in the broom cupboard, which is smelling a bit musty because we haven't been here for a while, um, and try and put out some something educational and keep our uh, keep things rolling. Um, how are you, Graham? Yeah, very well, thank you. Yep. Did you see the, uh, the uh, planets align last night? No, I didn't. Saturn and Jupiter. Yep. Good. <laughs> yeah. It was quite impressive. Yeah, well, I'm going to get the telescope out and have a look. Mm. My yep. son my son got a telescope a few oh. years ago. We've never used it. Well, we have. We looked at the moon quite a few times and then we, uh, we haven't really used it for a while. Wonderful. Um, so we're not going to talk about Christmas. No. Though it is almost Christmas, so you you would be forgiven for thinking that we might have done this. I did bring Graham a... Graham, did, Graham did, does want to talk about uh, um, I, pain relief uh, during Mary's labour, though. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm going to let him talk. I did bring in a book. Um, <laughs> I say you should never judge a book by its cover, but uh, this book has quite a spectacular cover. Yep, it's got um, some flowers and it's cool, and it's got the writing, the Quran. The Quran? Quran. Quran. The Quran. And uh, it, it it's actually... It's quite a famous book. It is a famous book, and it devotes a whole chapter to Mary... Uh, and uh, it, it describes her experience of labour um, with the birth of Jesus. Uh, and it, 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 I'll, I'll read exactly what it says. It says, The pains of labour drove her to the trunk of a date palm. She said, Oh, if only I had died before this and passed into oblivion. Yep, so it sounds like she had an s- experience which is similar to most women and that labour was pretty painful. Exactly. Yep. So I think given the opportunity um, for informed consent and the opportunity for labour analgesia over and above sucking or eating dates, uh, <laughs> I imagine um, Mary would have considered uh, an epidural. Yeah, possibly. For the birth of her... If she um, was in the institution with all the <laughs> supports. Exactly. People who are trained, well-trained. and Yep. Exactly. And so um, t- today I think we're going to talk a little bit about the examination process yep. for uh, anaesthetists in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, so very it, topical. Um, this uh, Just recently our college has finally uh, done some of its exams after this whole COVID-disrupted uh, year. So a lot of trainees and... Uh, Anesthetists who are in training or overseas trained specialists as well have all been um, had had everything disrupted, haven't they? So we we thought maybe we should finish the year off by talking a little bit about the part two, mm. the final exam in anesthesia, which is this the the one that we sort of fo- help um, um, teach or give some sort of practice exams for. Mm. So neither of us are examiners. Yeah. So disclaimer alert: mm. Uh, mm. neither Graham or I have ever been an examiner. Uh, uh, the most we can claim is that we have done the exam <laughs> quite a while ago and uh, we regularly sort of help out by giving practice vivas. So we thought we'd do um, 
uh, practice or record one of the practice survivors that um, that we use, and then we just talk about um, some advice that we think hopefully might be useful. Mm. Some examiners out there might go, no, duh, duh, that's bad, but I don't think so. No. I think I most think of it's just going to be common sense. I mean, I think from an examiner's point of view, they want to know that the person sitting <coughs> in front of them answering questions is safe. Yep. That they would, um, you know, gladly entrust someone that they know or someone that they are related yep. to or love into the care of those people. Yeah, so they want to know that the person they're examining understands all the important issues, seems to understand all the other healthcare workers and the condition that's that's been put in front of them, that they, that they appear like they would work well in the team and that they would have the patient's best wishes uh, in mind and that they know what to do when faced with difficult situations where decisions have to be made, they'll be decisive and safe. Yes. Yep. So I think it, it, it's an advantage if... Um, a person who is uh, presenting for the exam has spent some time or a significant proportion of their uh, anaesthetic career working in Australia and New Zealand. Yep. And it really does help if English English is their first language. Yeah. Yeah. They can't change that though. So no. I don't think that's – I think <clears throat> it can be. Um, or I, if, I just think it is, it is a bit different. Yeah, or if their difficult. English skills um, create uh, – you know, clear understanding of what's being communicated. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know. It, it could be, well, like you say, the familiarity with the, with the hospital systems mm. and the way of doing things that makes things a little bit more challenging too. Mm. Um, but not to worry. So uh, what we propose is Graham's going to give me a viva. Um, oh, it might not be exactly the same as, as a viva in real life because... Um, um, we have to modify it for a for a record an audience, but we'll try and make it realistic. Yeah, and so the vibe is the um, we'll really the it. final part of the final exam. Yeah, that's right. And it uh, comprises a series of eight scenarios uh, with the um, interrogation of the uh, candidate occurring for about fifteen minutes, two minutes of reading time, fifteen minutes of um, talking, and. Uh, because you can't read what's usually presented to the candidate, uh, I'll read out the first scenario. Yeah, okay. So Is that okay? Uh, yep, so we'll start. Uh, I'm going to be the examined person and you're going to be the examiner. Yes. Is there anything else we need to mention about the final exam vivas before we start? Um, I guess only on the point is traditionally they're all done in person and everyone's been flying to Melbourne or Sydney usually. Um, do their final exams but this year obviously I think it has been uh, a bit of a change in, in that some of them are actually done virtually or some of the examiners for example might actually be on a screen so I think um, I would have to talk to um, people who, have, who are sitting the more recent one is to find out how that's changed things. Mm. I think the format is going to be the same though isn't it? Yes, yes, uh, um, as much as possible. Okay. Mm. So uh, I'll start with the question and I'll give you 120 seconds to think about the answer, or less, because you less. get, a, so you, real life you you get, get two minutes worth of reading time. Yeah. Well, we'll just get straight into it, because it makes bad po podcasting if there's uh, long silence. Exactly. <laughs> well, I make notes. So, Roger, <laughs> you, you are the consultant anaesthetist covering Labor Ward in a large regional hospital. You're attending the Labor Ward round at 8am in, in the morning, and the obstetric team mentioned, by the way, 
a patient with a body mass index of 60 was admitted in active labour six hours earlier. Mm -hmm. What are the main concerns in a morbidly obese parturient? <clears throat> okay, so in the real uh, exam you have a few minutes uh, outside the door to sort of gather your thoughts and then when you go in you have to answer that first question. Uh, okay, so uh, thanks for the question, Graham. So... Candidate uh, Roger. Yes. Do you understand the question? Yes, I, yeah, I do. Candidate Roger, do you have any questions? No. Good. <laughs> so my main concerns in a morbidly obese parturient, so a morb uh, I try to think of the... Um, the physiological or medical conditions that they may have. So I, I worry in morbid obesity about a respiratory disease. So in particular, obstructive sleep apnea is um, very common in people with that, this body mass index. They have um, uh, a decreased FRC, so they're more likely to um, have um, atelectasis and um, low oxygen saturations and supine conditions or when they're anaesthetised um, they, they will rapidly desaturate and become hypoxic um, if they are anaesthetised. Um, I also worry about cardiovascular disease so hypertension, uh, heart failure, diabetes, coronary artery disease those things are all, all possible in someone with supermorbid obesity. Um, then I'll, I'd also be concerned about obstetric conditions that are related to being supermorbidly obese. So they already mentioned diabetes, which can lead to macrosomia, so large babies, um, a decreased size of the birth canal because of the adipose tissue, so they're more likely to have obstructed labours and require instrumental or caesarean deliveries. Um, I think they're more prone to um, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy as well and thromboembolism. Mm -hmm. uh, the obstetricians may find it difficult to to monitor both the uterine contractions and the fetus. Yes. Um, anaesthetic uh, concerns, obviously, specifically, you know, people of this body mass index, we have trouble sometimes putting in venous lines, arterial lines, uh, measuring the blood pressure with um, cuffs, which don't fit very well on large um, uh, obese arms. Um, they may have difficulties with the airway and ventilation so they may have difficulties you know, you know securing an airway if they have to have a general anaesthetic and then even when we do they may have, may have difficulties with ventilation and hypoxia and VQ mismatch, atelectasis etc. Um, in relation to obstetrics we may have maybe very difficult indeed to perform a neuraxial anaesthetic such as an epidural or a spinal um, because of the depth uh, to the spine and the inability to feel their spine. Mm. Um, problems with positioning and I would also be concerned about um, the OSA or undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea and sensitivity to opioids and things like that when we, give, when we prescribe our post-operative analgesia. <coughs> Those would be the main things are on my mind. So Roger, it's hard to be a mock examiner when I'm <laughs> not a true examiner, but I understand that the examiners aren't, aren't, um, are instructed not to give feedback. Okay, yes, so good. Bit of a poker face thing. Yeah. Um, so just ignore any of my grunting in the background. So Roger, how would you? Um, can you please describe how you would place an epidural for this woman? So I would still go through all the usual things that I do with everyone when I before I place an epidural. I check she doesn't have any contraindications like um, infections or. Uh, 
um, previous surgery, um, coagulopathy, low platelets, things like that. And then I would talk to her about what's involved. I'm not going to describe it to you now, but I would tell her uh, what an epidural is in, in simple terms. And then I would explain to her the risks. So I talk about like common side effects, and then I, which I include sort of itching, lowering of the temporary lowering of the blood pressure. Um, and then I'll also talk about um, more serious ones or more uh, concerning ones like uh, accidental dural puncture leading to severe headaches afterwards, uh, giving her the indication that's probably about 1 in 100. Failure of the catheter, which in general I would usually sort of quote about 1 in 20, but in someone of her BMI I would say that the risk of this catheter sort of migrating or not working is much higher, uh, and then we may have to place it again. Uh, and then very rare complications like infections or um, direct trauma to nerves or epidural hematomas, things that can cause neurological injury. And I don't usually give numbers. I don't know what other people do, but I just say it's extremely rare. And I talk about you know getting injured in a car accident or hit by lightning are, are rare events as well. And they're not they're not zero, but they they are very rare. So I try and emphasise that I think that they're actually it's a very safe. To, um, and you know, commonly used technique, but there is a, definitely a, some risk, but it's very small for serious things. And uh, would you describe, or can you describe how you'd actually do it? How you'd actually put the epidural yeah. in? Okay, so I'm going to try and be succinct in my description because it's a viral and I don't have a lot of time. But the most important things f- will be um, obviously, you know, uh, adjusting my technique because of her BMI. So positioning her is really, going to be really key. Uh, in our hospital, we have a good epidural positioning device, which makes it a lot safer and less likely that she's going to um, uh, injure herself or others by falling off the bed or being diff- you know, uh, having been difficult to position. Um, I usually clean the back first with uh, a swab, get my equipment gown up. I'll make sure I have all the longer needles uh, that I require and I'll also make sure that I have an, an ultrasound with a curvilinear probe and a, and a probe cover in the room. Uh, probably even turn it on and set it up um, before I get scrubbed. I like to use the, <coughs> um, like to use, if I can't palpate the back, I like to use it from the, from the start, especially in some of this BMI. And then I'll place the epidural using my normal technique of um, uh, anesthetizing the skin using a loss of resistance to saline with a long toy needle. When I find the space, I will flush some saline in to uh, try and minimise the risk of intravenous catheter placement, and then I'll thread in the intra- the epidural catheter. Usually, I would leave somewhere between sort of four, four and a half centimetres. In this woman, I would leave probably six or seven uh, <coughs> to ensure because of the risk of migration. I would test the catheter by aspirating and injecting. Um, the initial test dose would be just the standard solution that we use on labelboard, which is bupivacaine 0.125% with fentanyl 5 mics per mil. I'd probably use um, 5 mils of that. Uh, and then after that, I will secure the epidural catheter, making sure she sort of sits up before I secure it um, to prevent it from sort of migrating after she, after she um, makes herself more wrecked. And then I would... Um, set up the infusion, which is usually um, mandatory intermittent boluses via a um, pump with PCA function. And if after you've um, gone through all these steps, the patient still has inadequate analgesia, how would you proceed? <coughs> so is this like at the start or when uh, am I called back? 
after 20 minutes yeah, so you've gone back to check the block yep. and you've found that uh, the woman has inadequate analgesia. So in my mind, I'm trying to decide one of two things usually, or one of three things actually. Well, is the epidural catheter actually in the epidural space? So I will look at the dressing, I will look at the depth, is there, if there's a lot of fluid under the dressing or if it's obvious that the catheter has migrated out and, and you can see the markings on the catheter depth and you, that it, such that you know that it's no longer in the epidural space. So I won't waste time trying to put more drugs or medications down. I'll take it out and do another one. If I think it is in the epidural place, uh, space and it doesn't, there are no signs like that and she has, some, has, has had some evidence that there is some effect from the medications we're giving, then I'll try and give more medication usually I, I prefer to give sort of the dilute solution in larger volumes because i feel it will spread and see if that works uh, and then finally you know always keep in the back of your mind women uh, sometimes they have um, reached the second stage the baby's heads in the vagina or in, in, on the perineum and that is why they've got breakthrough pain and that's why it's, you're having difficulty getting them comfortable um, so you know just check with the midwives or the obstetric team whether they think that's possible because they're if that's the case, then just delivering the baby sorts everything out. So, Roger, two days later, you're in theatre and a code blue cesarean is called for cord prolapse. And the obstetric team bring in an obviously morbidly obese woman in the left lateral position with a midwife holding the fetal head off the cord. The woman's weight is 160 kilos. Her mm. height is 160 centimetres. What essential information do you want? Okay. So obviously this is an urgent situation. The obstetric team are worried about fetal ischemia from uh, compression of the fetal cord, which is prolapsed out, leading to you know um, to fetal, you know, fetal ischemia or hypoxia, and they are worried that if that can, if this is occurring, uh, then the baby could have a bad outcome. So they want um, me to facilitate them delivering that baby in a hurry. So doing emergency cesarean. So the first thing I want to know though is is do they do they know if is there cord compression and is there any fetal distress? So I would ask them to perhaps you know try and ascertain what the fetal heart rate is, or even use an ultrasound to look at the fetus while we sort this out. And I will try and uh, let them know that you know early within a f the first minute or so that doing a, a quick anaesthetic in someone this morbidly obese might be risky for the mother, and so we're not going to cut any corners. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to talk to then talk to the, the mother, ask for an anaesthetic history. Has she had anaesthetics? Has she had any problems? Is she allergic to anything? Um, does she have any comorbidities? Examine her airway. Um, ensure she's got a patent IV or with IV access and it's running. Um, get some help if available. Obviously, um, we can't wait for the help to arrive probably, but but could get some coming. So it's often uh, it's useful to have two sets of hands. And then we need to decide uh, on an anaesthetic technique. But did you want me to decide what to do yet? Or? Well, the patient has never had a GA. She said she's just had dinner. You examine her. She has a melon patty four airway. She's got a small mouth. She's got an obvious overbite. The obstetric registrar demands you perform a general anaesthetic before the baby dies. What are your options? Okay. So I can obviously the two things jumping out from this statement are that this woman has a very difficult looking airway and we already know she's morbidly obese and she's not fasted. <coughs> so 
so the the risk of jumping in to to a general anaesthetic is that we could fail to intubate her or fail to secure her airway and and or she could also aspirate um, because she uh, sounds like she has a full stomach so we could potentially at the moment uh, take a mother who is fine and uh, and kill her or cause serious harm so this is probably not a safe thing to do um, however I can see that this would be a very difficult situation to be in because the obstetric registrar is basically very very anxious and, and uh, worried about the fetus and so the mother probably is as well and there would be a lot of pressure on me uh, being the anesthetist in the room to do something so that they can do a caesarean yep. so first of all I will just exactly what I've just explained to you so, so explain that to the mother and to the um, obstetric registrar yeah. So you decide to do a general anaesthetic. Well, actually, can I go back? Can I would probably, yes. I would probably try and do a regional anaesthetic first because that's what we normally do. She's on the side. I'll probably with an ultrasound try and do a spinal. But the other option would be to do an awake intubation, which would also take long, uh, quite a while. Mm. But that is another option. Hopefully, I'll give some help coming. We can, um, yeah. So I know I do and. And just try and do everything possible to maintain the blood supply to the fetus. So make sure that they've given something to stop any uterine contractions, like tubutylene, and um, keep 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 someone who's skilled at keeping the head off the, the fetal cord and to keep it warm and and uh, try and prevent it from spasming, because there's gonna there's not going to be um, immediate delivery of the mother mm. of, of the baby because I'm not going to whack her off to sleep. In the vivas where time permits there's often additional questions that are provided there are really opportunities perhaps to get more marks or uh, to to use the time efficiently and so we've gone well past 15 minutes now yep. without talking but you have been very comprehensive and i suspect that in a pro in a, a real life viva situation you may have been prompted to move on yes because you were so comprehensive. But um, just for the end of the, the Viva, uh, um, um, education, I'll ask the question, so you decide to do a general anaesthetic on this woman, describe how you would prepare and then provide that care for the okay. woman. So I, w I probably wouldn't based on her airway exam, but just presuming, let's presume that her airway didn't look too bad, mm. even though she was 160 kilos. Yeah, so I would... Um, have a difficult airway trolley, I would well pre-oxygenate her, aiming for an entitled oxygen, oxygen of 0 0.8 to 0 0.9 at least. Um, have some help available, if, if possible, in a timely fashion. Um, make sure that the assistant who's helping me knows what plan A, plan B and plan C is. So in this situation I would plan to do, as you've told me, I have to do a rapid sequence induction, so I use propofol and succinothonium. She's 160 kilos, I'd probably use um, 200 of propofol and 200 of succinothonium. I'd use an entropy monitor. Uh, and then the plan would be to, I'd use some nasal prong oxygen for a passive um, apneic oxygenation after she becomes apneic. And I'd use a CMAC video laryngoscope. And I'd have a bougie. And then if that fails or I have DOA difficulties, I would put in a size 4 IGL and try and ventilate her through that and then if if needed 
I could try and intubate through that with a bronchoscope. Would you? Or uh, a surgical airway is obviously the, the final pathway. I don't think, I know in the vortex management of airway problems, you know, they talk about bag mask ventilation, but I would probably leave that as number three um, based on her BMI and body mass. Would you use cricoid pressure? Uh, I wouldn't. I would make sure that my assistant can see what I'm doing and they can move the larynx around to optimise my view. And I'd make sure she's head up in a ramped position. Sorry, I didn't mention that, did I? No. Using the Oxford uh, positioning device, which is what we use for morbidly obese people. Mm. I think that's very good, Roger. Very comprehensive. Well, we never have time, didn't I? You ran out of time. <laughs> but you were very comprehensive. Which is one thing you're not supposed to do. But, yeah. Good. Very good. So, so I have... I didn't know the answers beforehand, so that that's a little bit different to real exam it is. exam candidates. Although yeah. um, practice makes perfect, so that is advice uh, that I'd like to give us: like practice doing lots and lots and lots of vivas. Mm. Try and find out what previous questions are, and get people to give them to you, or even give them to yourself. So you know, hopefully on the day, some of the vivas that you get, you would have answered before in a practice situation. I think uh, if you have. Uh, trained comprehensively um, when you approach the final exam the vivas are all situations you may well have encountered or heard described by others yeah and so the ability to classify as you did um, the issues succinctly uh, enables the examiners to know you know what you're talking about yep and hard to do this on a podcast but definitely look at the examiner's face and their body language because if you go if you if you're starting to dribble on about something that's not ticking any of their boxes there will usually be some subtle signs that they probably were hoping you were going to stop so sometimes just stop and ask them do you want to hear about this that's a good way of just checking because because probably as we've seen in this Mm. practice one that we've done we were i was surprised at how much time we went over how we went over time exactly um So every minute that you talk about something that's not on their piece of paper, they're not they're not going to score. You're wasting time, aren't you? Yes, and sometimes so, um, some examiners I think are deliberately um, not bulldogs, but uh, they will question your judgments and ask you to justify what you're doing. Yep. And some are um, more likely to do that than others, and I don't know if that's part of the deliberate way that the um, examination process is set up. Yeah, I think as long as they do that with every candidate, mm. they're just probing your knowledge. It's probably a good way of seeing you know, yeah. how much you know and if you can, ju- you should be ready for that. Uh, someone to ask you to justify your decision. Exactly. Yep. Mm. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to talk about this afternoon? Uh, yeah, not really. Uh, <coughs> part one, part two. See, I don't want to give too much advice because I don't think I'm uh, an expert in the part two exam or the final exam. Mm. That's so. That's usually uh, the sort of viva I give. Yeah, it's a bit of a uh, <laughs> bit of a glum viva, ba- isn't it? Yeah, it is based on a real uh, case mm. that I had. That turned out all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking. It wasn't exactly the same either. So I haven't broken any uh, confidentiality clauses. <laughs> I'm working this evening, so I'm expecting something like this. I, I find that if I expect it every time I come to work, then I'm never disappointed. Whenever people come. Uh, uh, through the hospital and they would come into the room to get my practice viva. They tell me afterwards that they were expecting to get a postpartum hemorrhage viva and they never do because <laughs> they haven't got one. <laughs> Which is 
funny because I remember my part one exam, I recognised a few of the examiners and I, I remember I walked in and there was this guy, Tony Gann, who was um, writ, who wrote the textbook on s- statistics and anaesthesia and I saw him and my heart sunk. But I didn't get any, he didn't ask me any questions about stats. <laughs> so that was good. That was a relief. No, well, sorry, it wasn't Gann, Tony Chin. Oh my God, I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> When I was a medical student, he made me um, breathe nitrous oxide in Christchurch. We, I think you were allowed to give nitrous oxide to medical students back then. It's probably against the law now. Mm. <laughs> you have too much. Your bone marrow doesn't work properly. Yeah. Anyway. Don't, don't want to encourage that um, that substance misuse <coughs> from an early age. All right, we better call it quits. Yeah, happy, uh, happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. Joya Noel. <laughs> Joya Noel. I don't know if I pronounced that right. For the Weihnachts. <laughs> for the Weihnachts. Okay. See you next year. See you next year. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.obsandgynecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.